Amen. I just can't help but smile about my Savior. He's awesome. What do you think of when you hear the word Memorial Day? Maybe you picture a holiday, a day off of work, the office is closed, school's closed, the beginning of summer vacation, backyard barbecues, family get-togethers, Memorial Day. In most churches, Memorial Day is ignored because it's not one of the holy days on the church calendar. But I believe that it would be good for us to consider what Memorial Day really represents, for its very name calls us to remember. The ability to remember is a wonderful thing. In a flash, we can be taken back to skipping rocks on the, on the pond or walking through a meadow or spending precious time with family members. Through memory, we can fall in love, get married, and have, enjoy our children all over again. All this is possible through the blessing of memory. Some of our memories are happy as we recall wonderful experiences, but some are sad. Some we rem remember things we regret, things we shouldn't have done, or we may weep as we remember certain things. Memories are also very practical. If you couldn't remember that a red light means stop, you'd be in big trouble, right? If you weren't able to remember what day it is, or your anniversary, or your wife's birthday, you'd be in big trouble. So memories are practical. There was a guy named John who had a serious memory problem. One day John ran into a longtime friend he had not seen in a while, and he greeted him and said, Bill, do you remember what a bad memory I had? Well, yes, I certainly do, Bill said. Well, it's not bad anymore. I went to this seminar, and it was all great. They taught us how to remember things, and now I have a wonderful memory. And Bill said, well, that's great. What was the name of the seminar? Well, wait a minute. My wife will know. I'll turn and ask, ask her. So he turned and saw his wife nearby. Then he turned back to, to Bill, and he said, what's the name of the flower that has uh, uh, thorns on it? It's really pretty. It has a red bloom. Well, that's a rose, Bill said. Okay, thanks. And then he turned back to his wife. Hey, Rose, what's the name of that seminar we went to? There are events and important dates that we, that we have to remember and we should never forget, and Memorial Day commemorates some of them. This special day started, the, started near the end of the Civil War, and within a few years, the practice of laying uh, flowers on military graves had spread throughout both the North and the South and, we, and was being called Decoration Day. Then after World War I, it became a national holiday dedicated to remembering those who had made the ultimate sacrifice for the freedoms that we enjoy. On Memorial Day, we're supposed to observe and remember the deaths of soldiers in a way that honors them and their choice to become a soldier and the great sacrifices they've made. As we reflect on these heroes of our freedom, we remember the greatest hero of all, Jesus Christ who laid down his life willingly for us to cleanse us from our sins and to give us eternal life in him. The incredible thing about this great gift of God is that it's free. And it comes when we are in our deepest, darkest valleys of trouble in our sin. With no real expectancy of true life, 
or love and without any hope. God's love is amazing because it's freely given and it's unconditional, meaning that there's nothing we can do or nothing we've done or will do that can separate us from the love of God. Isn't that amazing? Wow. When you begin to understand the extent of God's love for you and how he's made a way for you in your situation and in your life, there's something about this perfect God and loving Savior that just draws us to him. God's love is fascinating and it is alluring. Over the past few weeks, Brother Mark has taken us through the book of Joshua and the Israelite conquest into the promised land. And one of the most significant events about this time was the the wall of Jericho falling down as the Israelites marched around it. And it wasn't their great weaponry or, or, or war strategies that, that helped them through this. It was their obedience to God and God's power, trusting in Him. The only requirement, though, for them, after the wall had fallen down and they took the city, was they were not supposed to take any of the, the things from the city for their own. But of course, what happens in the Bible and in our lives when God tells us not to do something? We go and do it. We go and do it. And this morning we're going to be reading from Hosea chapter 2. So if you turn in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 14 and 15. Now, the setting of this book is a little bit, a uh, few hundred years after the Israelite conquest, but we're going to see a connection here. This, during this time in Hosea, it's, it's during the decline and fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. And here we're going to see how God's grace and the tenderness of heart for his people and how the valley of Accor, this valley of Accor, we're going to talk about it in just a moment, is a symbol of God's wrath and Israel's unfaithfulness to the covenant that God established with them. But that in our story, God, God will turn it into a place of hope and restoration. So if you will, we're going to read Hosea chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. At the beginning of this chapter in Hosea, God is speaking to the prophet about how Israel has once again broken the covenant, has been disobedient to God by following after other gods, false idols. After God relates to Hosea after all that Israel has done and the judgment that should be uh, given to, to Israel, he uses a type of conditional statement. The judgment language he uses is like saying, since you did this and you did this and you did this, then this and this and this is going to happen. That's what, that's what it's saying in, in Hosea, the beginning part of Hosea chapter 2. Are you all following me still? Hosea chapter 2. So God is telling them about all the judgment that's about to come upon them. But in verse 14, we see a change in tone. It's almost as if you can hear God's voice change. You've been here before where maybe a parent or someone has, has been scolding you about something and then maybe they've changed their tone and responded kindly, shown a little grace. So he begins the next passage by saying, Therefore, here in verse 14 it says, Therefore, since Israel has sinned, therefore, I will punish them. No, he doesn't say that. He says, since Israel has sinned, therefore, or even so, I will renew the covenant with her. God responds to their disobedience with love and grace. 
where there was prostitution, adultery, and disobedience, nevertheless, even so, these things will be overcome with a renewed covenant of fidelity, betrothal, and love. God will allure Israel, allure and bring her into the wilderness. To allure someone means to powerfully attract or charm, kind of like we talked about this fishing analogy with the bait. It's powerfully attracting. We might use it in a sentence like, Nathan was allured by the sweet-smelling aroma of the barbecue on the grill. Okay, y'all didn't laugh at that, but maybe it's because you're thinking about lunch now and I've already lost you. Sorry about that. But when something is alluring, it's powerfully attracting and mysteriously fascinating. But this is the devil's playing field, isn't it? The devil likes to tempt us, bait us with words of pleasure and, and entice us to do things that, are, that is sin. And he uses deception in this way. He dresses up the ugliness of sin to make it into something to seem like something good and appealing to us. But it's in these times of temptation, when the devil is tempting us the most, that we need to have a a solid foundation on Jesus Christ. We need to trust in him, be firmly planted in the word of God, so that we're not swept away by the deceitfulness of the devil. But here in our text, the word allure doesn't, it's not this, uh, the same negative connotation of of, of, uh, temptation. God says, I will allure her. It's not, I will drive her. It's not, I will drag her or force her to do something she doesn't want to do. No, I will allure her. It's the tender, loving voice of persuasion. Alluring. It makes me think of how a parent maybe allures a a small child when they're starting to walk with maybe something sweet or with their arms out. Come on, walk to me. And the the child just starts walking. We We have a new puppy. Her name's Reba. And when I, when, I, when I have her ball or her toy or a piece of bacon, oh, yeah, she likes bacon. She comes running up to me, and it, she's just allured by the, she's drawn to this bacon, to the smell of bacon or her toy of just being playful. Honestly, I'm the same way. I can be allured by bacon and other sweet-smelling things. And if it's a home-cooked meal, you'll see me come running up, you know. But we can all be allured and enticed to many things and situations in life. But the one thing that is the most fascinating is the love of God in Jesus Christ. That is the most alluring thing to me. His love for us is so incredible that it outbids anything the devil may throw at us. While the devil may try to twist and manipulate us into sinning, there's nothing and no one that compares to the overwhelming, never-ending, Reckless love of God. His love is one that speaks to the core of our being because he's the one who knows us the most. He knows us intimately and can speak tenderly to our hearts. God's love is a love that allures you. In our passage this morning, God promises to speak to Israel with tenderness of heart and draw her away from the commotion and chaos of of the world and reestablish the marital covenant with her. He sees their unfaithfulness and knows that the best thing for, for Israel is to, take in, to be taken back to, uh, to start fresh, start anew, to renew this covenant. And God doesn't abandon them. The marriage metaphor is still intact. 
God desires to reestablish his covenant and take them back to a level of courtship, a precursor to marriage. Now, there's a big difference between dating and courting. Dating someone is kind of relaxed. I mean, it's so easy to date in the world. I mean, you, there's apps out there that, you know, if you, if you swipe left, you don't want to date someone. If you swipe right and they swipe right, then, then oh, the date is set and you guys get together and, and, and it's, it's an easy hookup. There's not really much to it. I mean, you don't have to even know the person to date someone. Courting is a little bit different. Courting is a serious agreement with a view of a vision of marriage in the future. And it's one that involves God. It ha- it's a covenant relationship. And it de- implies complete devotion. In the desert, the Lord will be able to speak to Israel with tenderness of heart and away from the distractions of her other lovers, her other gods. And Yahweh... Yahweh, the Lord God, uses the language of courtship to describe a renewed covenant with Israel. He will begin to transform her into the wife that she has failed to be in the past. Now, if you've ever heard about Hosea or read Hosea, you know that he had a unique calling on his life. Because God called him to marry a woman who who was known for living a lifestyle of promiscuity. Gomer was the daughter of Deblame, okay? I'm going to call him Deblame. That's what's, that's, I don't know how to pronounce it, but Deblame is, is how we're going to pronounce his name. But Gomer was the daughter of Deblame. And Deblame's name literally means a double portion of raisin cakes. A double portion of raisin cakes. What does that mean? If you don't know, raisin cakes are an aphrodisiac. And when we study scripture, we know that names have meaning behind them. And oftentimes that the people in the Bible live up to the names that they're given. So Gomer's father, to blame, or a double portion of raisin cakes, speaks of one completely given up to, uh, into sensuality. It refers to his deceitfulness and his, uh, his immorality. So to blame wasn't a great role model for, for her, his, his daughter, Gomer. And we can understand why, because such a woman of sexual pleasure because of the immorality, uh, example of immorality that was set before her from her father, to blame. So we can put to blame on to blame. See what I did there? Even after Hosea and Gomer are married, though, she will continue to be unfaithful to him, which is symbolic of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. If you look at the verses just before our passage, you'll find God's judgment on the people of Israel. He will punish her for their disobedience, but what follows next is incredible. God says, even though you've been dishonoring to me, disobedient to me, chasing after these other gods, I will continue to pursue you. I'm not giving up on you. I will allure you and speak tenderly to you. I will draw you to myself. God doesn't give up on the children of Israel when they're disobedient, and God doesn't give up on us when we are. Even though at times we've been completely disobedient and turned away from him. Instead of the full force of God's wrath, he desires to speak tenderly to us, communicating with us in the language of our hearts, of our true selves, because only he can speak that, because he's the one who created us. He knows us the most. 
when we are the most vulnerable and at the point of our deepest need, God remains with us and desires to know us intimately. And throughout the Bible, we, we hear of people wandering in the wilderness for a while and, and God speaking to them. It makes me think of uh, uh, Abram's maidservant, Hagar, who ran away off into the wilderness and God spoke to her. It makes me think of the Israelites who roamed in the wilderness for 40 years, following God, chasing after God. It makes me think of John the Baptist, who was this wild man from the wilderness. But people were drawn to his teaching of repentance. It also makes me think of Jesus, who spent time in the wilderness to, to be alone with the Father. There are also many others in the Bible when, who God speaks to in these areas of wilderness. In our passage, God's language of courtship will, and covenant renewal will become the spark for Israel to recognize her first love and to bring about an awareness of the Lord. And it's also an invitation for us to renew our covenant relationships with God and with others, to be faithful to Him as He is always faithful to us. But it wouldn't mean anything if to your spouse if, if you made wedding vows, marriage vows, and you didn't intend to keep them, right? If you didn't wake up each and every day needing to keep your marriage vows. Just like our marriage vows, we're called to honor God, forsake all others, and love Him at all costs. Our circumstances shouldn't change that, because it wouldn't be a true covenant of love if you didn't keep all of these vows all of the time. In the busyness of our lives, there's also the danger of becoming careless and going through the motions. You may go to church regularly or share a, mess, a prayer of blessing over your meal, but you're numb to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You don't see what God is doing because you're consumed by the things of the world. And this type of attitude can blind us. It can blind us from the captivating love of God, the amazing love of God. And our souls desire, our souls need that. God's covenant relationship is established by committing your life to love unconditionally and to recognizing that you are loved unconditionally. We need to establish our marriage covenants, our relationships with others on the foundation of God's powerful and alluring love. We sang the song earlier, Jesus, there's something about that name. Jesus. Isn't it a powerful name? Jesus. There's just something about the name of Jesus that gets me excited, and I hope it gets you excited, because he's my Savior. He died for my sins. He's given me new life, restoration and redemption, and hope. I hope you know what I mean when I say that God's love is alluring that he draws us to himself, that there's just something about his captivating love that causes us to, to come to church, to wake up in the morning wanting to read our Bible and, and to know him more intimately. The name of Jesus is alluring to us because of the blessed assurance he brings in our salvation and also because he's open and inviting, giving his life for us when we didn't deserve it grace when we couldn't earn it, and real life that can be only experienced through Him, and that will never die. 
Philippians 2, 10 and 11 says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. The name of Jesus is powerful, and when you pursue a deep relationship with Christ, others will recognize him in your life, and others will be drawn to, to, to Christ through you. But being a glowing example of Christ isn't always easy, is it? It's hard. Sometimes we may, we may wonder where God is in our difficult situations, when we find ourselves alone in the world. And it's from the cross that we hear Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, even Jesus experienced feelings of rejection, loneliness, and abandonment as he suffered for us. His self-sacrifice shows us that he's not willing to have anyone perish, but that all may have eternal life. It's from this place that he is able and willing to give us the desires of our heart and have our joy be made complete. So when you find yourself in a place of trouble or loneliness, you can be sure that God is with you, and he will never leave you, and he will see you through it. We're going to pick up in verse 15. Then I will give her her vineyards from there in the valley of Accor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. This verse announces that God's people will be given back everything that was taken away from them from, the time, from their time of uh, an exodus from Egypt. The vineyards represent the arable land that's fit to grow crops, land that they needed, which was taken away because of their unfaithfulness to God. The valley of Accor literally means valley of trouble. That's the Hebrew word Accor means trouble. Valley of trouble. And it's the place that was memorialized for Achan's sin of stealing from the forbidden things when Jericho was taken. As a result, the Israelites suffered a defeating, humiliating defeat at Ai because of their disobedience to God. Achan brought about judgment and trouble upon himself, upon his whole family, and upon the people of Israel, all because of his sin. Like Achan, our sin affects those around us. Our sin affects those around us. We can't go through life thinking that what, what we do doesn't affect or influence someone else. Our sin affects those around us and also the sin of others. The evil in this world affects us. We can't keep turning our head or, or trying to avoid the sin and the evil that's out there. We have to stand up against it because evil does exist in our, in our world. We have to stand up for the truth of God in our lives. We have to be able to speak truth into the lives of others, to our family members, to our neighbors, to our friends, and to honor God with our lives completely. Sin in the world and in our lives puts us in a valley of trouble, the valley of the shadow of death. For the wages of sin is death. But look at our verse and see how the words trouble and hope are closely connected. Trouble and hope. It's a bit odd, don't you think? I mean, we might say, I hope I don't get in trouble. But that's as close as those two words get together. 
But here, trouble is the reason for hope. The valley of trouble will be a door of hope. Why is that? Well, Israel is in a valley of trouble. They've played the spiritual harlot, worshiping other gods, breaking their covenant with God. Yet in spite of all they've done in their disobedience, the Lord is continually beckoning them to return. The valley of Accor is described as a becoming a gateway of hope in which the Israelites will experience restoration from the trouble that, they have, that has led them into the wilderness. The Hebrew word for hope is tiko. Okay, we're, we're given Hebrew lessons today. The Hebrew word for hope is tiko. And it's a homonym for the word that is used in uh, Joshua when Rahab hung the rope from her window. So it means thread or rope. The imagery of this door stems from the Israelite conquest into the promised land as they encountered the prostitute Rahab who hid them in her roof. She was the one Canaanite who survived and symbolizes the possibility of covenant renewal, of a union between God and, and Canaan and between land and desert. Because the valley of trouble is where God often reveals himself to us. He allures us into the wilderness to get us away from our distractions so he can speak tenderly to our hearts. And it's the trouble that we are in, that we find ourselves in, that can actually swing open a door of hope. I mean, the trouble in our, in our life, the sin that we have in our lives, is the reason that Jesus came. The reason that Jesus came down to earth to sacrifice for us to give us hope. The trouble you may find yourself in does not come without hope because Jesus is the way maker through the despair, through the rejection, through the shame, through the guilt, through the regret. When we find ourselves in this valley of hope, there's, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Folks, America is in a valley of trouble. There's bullying at schools, school shootings, racism, all sorts of evil that is just growing all around us, and hate like we've never seen before. We're in a valley of trouble. And church, we're in a valley of trouble. We've got to be able to stand up against this evil that's growing all around us, and also understand the importance of the human soul. The human soul is the most important aspect of human life. It's the one thing that's eternal, yet it's the most neglected. The human soul is the most important aspect of the human life. It's the one thing that's eternal, yet it's the most neglected. We will never make it through our valleys of trouble on our own, but we can trust in God's unfailing love and find hope in Him because there's nothing that's impossible with God. There's no sorrow that heaven can't cure. These places of difficult times are where God trains us to trust Him. It's here where we learn to trust Him and discern His voice, where we can hear Him speak tenderly to our hearts. There are many different forms of trouble in our life and in many different valleys we find ourselves in. But I want you to know that Jesus went to the ultimate valley of trouble for us. He conquered sin and death. 
when we're in the deepest, darkest valley of trouble, he swung open a door of hope for us. There's nothing more attractive and alluring to me than the love of God. And the most amazing thing is that he wants me and he wants you. He desires us to know him more intimately. He knows your name. He knows who you are at the core of your being. And he knows what trouble you're in. So it doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been. God will see you through that valley of trouble. And I think the words of David Crowder's song, Come As You Are, describe the confident hope that we can have in Jesus Christ. I just want you to hear these words for just a moment. Come out of sadness from wherever you've been. Come brokenhearted, let rescue begin. Come find your mercy, O sinner, come kneel. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. There's hope for the hopeless and all those who've strayed. Come sit at the table, come taste the grace. There's rest for the weary, rest that endures. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't cure. So lay down your burden, lay down your shame. All who are broken, lift up your face. O wanderer, come home. You're not too far. So lay down your hurt. Lay down your heart and just come as you are. That's the invitation for you this morning. Whatever you've done, wherever you've been, God wants to share his love with you. It's a love that's fascinating because he cares for you the deepest part of your soul, and invite you to a place that he can speak to your heart. So if you find yourself in a valley of trouble, look up. Look to the Savior. He wants to lead you through it. No matter what, keep your eyes on Jesus. His love is awesome. His love is awesome. And it's a love that is alluring. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this word that I've so desperately needed to hear. Thank you for the, the desire to know us more. Thank you for giving us hope in a place of trouble, in a place where there is no hope. And God, we can't do this on our own. Without you, we're all in a valley of trouble. We're like a ship without a sail. Thank you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to use this time as our invitation. If you would like to um, commit your life to Christ for the first time, I would love to pray with you about that. Or the altar is open. This, is, this here is an altar, and, and you can come forward and... and and pray to God and talk to Him in a, in a sign of humility. If you just need prayer for something in your life that you would like me to pray for, pray with you. I will pray with you gladly. If, you, if you'd like to come forward and be baptized or, or if you would like to become a member of this church, this is the time to do that. So will you stand with me as we sing this song?